0: If you've been a Christ follower for any amount of time, chances are you've had events and moments and church gatherings or conferences or uh, a time with the Lord in the scripture or prayer that you just stood up and you were like, I am going to defend truth today. Like you've stood up and you were like, I'm going to teach what matters most, or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to drift, and I'm not going to be misled, and, and maybe you have felt like this. Sometimes visual images help a lot when you're talking about this type of stuff. But you feel this. You are the athlete. The muscles are flexing and you are focused and you have the endurance to run and you just keep going. And you're, you're like, I feel this when I stand up for my time with the Lord and I'm glowing and I'm ready and people are going to question if I've been meeting with the Lord because of my face is shining and I'm focused And I'm running, and I'm running, and I'm running. And sometimes you just feel that way, right? Sometimes these images are the way we feel. I get it. Every once in a while I feel that. Every once in a while I do have a moment when I stand up and I go, it is time to defend the truth. But every once in a while, a video comes along that so amazingly captures the human heart that it has to be shared many times. And so maybe you find yourself standing up, feeling that, and you step out that front door and, and then you you feel this way. <laughs> Yeah, that feels about right. <sighs> uh, uh, remember what we're doing. Come on. Remember. Remember where we're supposed to be at. Remember. Hey, hey, you. Come on. Uh, what, what are we doing here? Like, this feels more like home, right? <clears throat> right? And sometimes you do need the backhand of grace every once in a while, or the knee-to-the-head grace, whatever it is. Uh, remember where you're supposed to be headed, who's you are, where you're going. Like, every once in a while, a video comes along that so perfectly describes the human heart. I feel like that all the time. Um, you know, and I think some of you do as well, like you gather, you sing, you pray, you read, you go out that door and you're like, man, I'm going to hit today. I'm going to hit it hard, but I can't get gas. (sighs) Now I'm afraid. And now I don't know what to do. And now the, the world is over and Jesus is like, Nope, it's not over. Gas powers that be do not hold all authority. Guess who does? Jesus does. And so, as we look at these confessions of the Apostles' Creed that are found, that are announcements, you know, we sing the songs prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We pray the prayer that Jesus asks us to lead us not into temptation. This isn't just because we're dealing with a culture and a society and a world where an enemy is attempting to cause Christ followers to be distracted from the one who made them. This is actually in a declaration or an announcement of our human hearts. Like I feel it in my heart to wander. Like, I I I feel that pull and that tug, and it's real, and it's not the enemy, it's not the world, it's not the devil making me do anything, it's this tug in my heart to value anything more than Jesus. It's this tug in me to go, I want to call the shots, I want to be in charge, I want to make all the decisions, I want to be the final authority, and you know what the Apostles Creed does? It reminds our hearts who God is. You see, we don't make these declarations. We don't make these, uh, these, these loud, huge statements together as a, as a church because God needs to hear us say those things. See, I think we, we're the ones who need to say these things. We're the ones who not just with our mouths say it, but with our ears we hear others saying it and declaring it, and we're like, oh, right. I do believe that God is Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe that. And when we're, we're like, oh wait, I've been wrecked about these things, these circumstances, this stuff, and I haven't even brought it to my Father Almighty who invites me to do those things. See, God is not like the Greek or Roman gods of the day who were dependent on the people to worship them so that they would exist. If you know anything about Greek and Roman mythology, they were dependent upon the people's worship. And so these very manipulative and petty gods would create disasters so that the people would cry out to them so that they would have meaning and still exist. God of the Bible, who we, re- we talked about last week, God Almighty, Father, I am. He is in need of no thing. He has no needs, but we've been invited to come close and to worship. He is the God over the entire universe, but he is the God of every single detail of my life. These are huge statements that our hearts need to say over and over and over, because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. So if you guys would allow me to make this confession again as we're talking about the person of Jesus housed in the Apostles' Creed the largest portion of the Apostles' Creed is about the person and the work of Jesus. It should not be a shock to us. I believe in God the Father Almighty Creator of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ His only Son our Lord Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You know, the sooner that you and I understand that these declarations are not for God, because when God hears this, He's not, yeah, that's right, I am. Yeah, that's right, I am, all those things. The truth is, as we make these declarations, we are saying, yeah, that's right, He is. I just don't know if we recognize how fickle our human hearts are and how much we actually need to confess these things together. How easily we forget how something like a gas shortage can send us over the edge. Father, I ask that by your power this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you would instruct us, you would equip us, you would strengthen us, Where there is needing to be conviction, convict us. Where there is needing to be comfort, comfort us. But Lord, we're here because Jesus. Because of the person of Jesus. Thank you for your plan. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, Christ followers are not subject to the authority of the creeds. We don't say mantras or incantations together. We don't repeat phrases over and over to work ourselves up into a tizzy. We don't, we don't think we can manipulate God if we say the right combination of words and the right pattern and the right phrase. We can get God to do whatever we want. We do not believe that. These confessions are, these creeds, they're not the ultimate authority over us, but they do reflect, as we've been talking about, as the moon reflects the sun, they reflect everything the scriptures teach and the apostles declared to the New Testament church. And so they are springboards for us in this series into the scripture that teaches these elements. The scripture is the authority that we look to. The scripture is the revelation of God from Genesis to revelation of Him going this is who I am. This is what I say. This is who you are because of who I am and what I say. I mean, like, this is God announcing himself, ripping through the veil that we're all wandering around and finding and fumbling and trying. He's saying, I am him. Don't look anywhere else. Don't go anyplace else. I am the Lord. I am that I am. Sent Moses to bring deliverance to those people. And so these confessions become us actually saying, God, we agree with you. (laughs) God, we agree with you. We say you are God. You say you're God, we say you are. The simplicity of that really causes my heart to rejoice. Because he didn't make it complicated. I think sometimes we are so caught up as a society in all the things we don't understand about Scripture that we miss the very simple announcement that we are in need of a rescuer and God has provided that rescuer in Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. In a teachable moment with the disciples, Jesus asks two of the most important questions you and I will ever wrestle with. Uh, One dealing with public opinion, which sometimes I do think we need to wrestle with. We need to be able to answer, what does public opinion suggest on certain things? But then Jesus takes it to the personal. And that's in Matthew chapter 16, and he says, what do you believe ultimately? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Not only is it important to give the specific names for locations in the Scripture, to validate the scriptures, I think sometimes you and I we fly over these things that God has put His thumbprint across history, something as simple as the name of a city or the name of people that are recorded in the scriptures historically, you can go back to and check the street cred on the scriptures, so not just to validate the the, the scriptures or the names of these cities and locations put in there specifically, but the The author's intent is important in the fact that it is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi had a history of worship, specifically the worship of Baal, the foreign fertility god that Israel found herself worshiping quite often because the bad kings couldn't keep their hands off of foreign women. And so this fertility god, actually poles and and altars were built within the land of God's people and many, many different consequences came about because of that. But the worship of Baal went on there. The Greek god Pan, the god of nature, wild flocks and shepherds, and often connected to sexuality, was worshipped in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And then Philip the Tetrarch, after himself, named this place, oh, and Caesar Augustus. He was like, you know what, let's name this place after us, now that we're calling things. And so in in a city that was connected to people making these bold announcements about their authority, about their power, about their total control, Jesus asks a very important question, and Peter makes a very important declaration. Caesarea Philippi has had a connection with people making names and claims of their greatness, but in this teachable moment, Jesus asks two questions. Who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am. And the answers were most in line with Jewish tradition. Well, the Messiah, he he looks like John the Baptist. He looks like Elijah. He looks like, you know, Jeremiah or some of the Old Testament prophets. And public public opinion has always existed about Jesus. And obviously, in our culture today, we're no different. We have public opinions about Jesus. And some of you in this room may carry some of those public opinions about who Jesus is. And I want to clarify for those of you that might be confused, for I was many years, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Okay, when he, if he was at school, the teacher would not be saying, Christ, anyone, anyone, Christ, Jesus Christ, present, no, it would not be that way. His historical name would have been Jesus Bard. Bar-Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus Christ is a title that Peter is declaring in a place where everyone's saying they have the authority. He's saying something totally different. And the Old Testament paints a portrait of the one who's going to come and set things right. We're given snapshots of what this Messiah, this anointed one that God promises in the Old Testament to come and bring rescue to his people. And in the Old Testament, what it does is, if you, if you will, it gives these snapshots or these threads, these strands that describe what the Messiah, the promised one, which is what Christ means, the anointed one, would look like. And in the Old Testament, you get descriptions of a deliverer, just like Moses rescued the Israelites from Egypt. But you get a, a, a deliverer coming, a final deliverer, a final rescuer Someone who's going to bring in a new covenant, one that's different from the way of the law, but that is going to give us new hearts. Our hearts of stone will be replaced by this heart of flesh that's obedient and responsive to God. He's going to restore a kingdom that the nation of Israel was hearing these things. He's coming from the line of David. For those of you that know David the king, that was very well-known and probably the most famous of all. They said, this guy, this rescuer is going to come from this line? That's good news because he's going to be powerful. He's going to come in power and he's going to break us out of this. But then the prophet Isaiah throws a wrench into this plan. And he describes this rescuer this way, Isaiah 52. See, my servant will prosper He will be highly exalted, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human, and from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses He carried. It was our sorrows that weighed Him down. And we thought His troubles were a punishment from God for His own sins. But He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave." You ask most people who have a working knowledge of who Jesus is, and there are people in our society that don't have any clue, but for the most part, when you read this, someone would actually tell you that describes Jesus. That's amazing that someone would say that, considering this was written six to seven hundred years before Jesus walked the earth. You can see why I would say that Isaiah announces this wrench in the plans of Israel's idea of who the Messiah would be, because... The rescuer should not suffer. How is it that that can happen? How is it that the rescuer, this mighty king, this this deliverer, this one in the line of David, this this person who's coming and he's going to restore a kingdom, suffer? That's not right. (laughs) That can't be right. But it is. The rescuer the curve ball that God threw into the plans of Israel was that He didn't send someone in His stead. He put on flesh and came and did the work necessary to save sinners, to deliver us from the power and the penalty of sin. This is Jesus the Christ Christ. The Messiah. And so when Peter is announcing his allegiance in this moment, if you were to walk around Caesarea Philippi, you would be able to see the power of Rome, the crushing power of Rome. And Peter's declaration to Jesus was not, you are a Christ figure. You are a person who is like a Messiah, like a rescuer. He said, you are the Messiah. Christ. You are the rescuer sent by God. You are the one we have been waiting for. And your authority trumps all the authority we see around us. This was not just a weak, feeble announcement. It was an act of rebellion and allegiance all at the same time. Peter saying to Jesus... I believe you're the Messiah. You're the one who's been promised by God. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says that Jesus is the Son of God, not a son of God. Yes, you and I, through faith in Christ, are adopted into the family and sons and daughters of God, but Jesus holds a unique position and place when it comes to his relationship with God. It's a one-of-a-kind, class, all-by-himself relationship With God. And that phrase, Son of God, does not mean that somehow God created Jesus, but it puts him equal to God. Co eternal. I am that I am. With God in the beginning. In John chapter 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was not created by God, but has always existed and expresses the very authority over all things that God does. I heard one person say that because of Jesus' authority, Jesus does not argue. Look in Scripture. Demon shows up, does he argue with that demon? When a storm shows up, does the storm argue with Jesus? Did Lazarus, when he was dead, argue with Jesus when Jesus said, come out? No, because of Jesus's authority as the unique son of God, the second person in what we acknowledge as Christ followers, as the Trinity, the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son has always existed in perfect relationship with his Father. It is a unique relationship, one of a kind, and because of that, the authority that he has as the son of God. Christ followers made a simple declaration that often cost them everything and that is simply Jesus is Lord. We said it today. And this is not a little little announcement. In a day where Roman citizens declared Caesar is Lord, Christians would say Caesar is Caesar and we will give him what is due, but Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the thing that would even put them in a place quicker on the death penalty bed is that Jesus is even Lord over Caesar. It wasn't just that Jesus was their Lord and that Jesus was just their Lord and that that was the only Lord thing. It was, no, Jesus is Lord over all. And for Caesar, that meant him too. You can see why someone who would name a place after themselves would be upset that Christ followers would suggest he's not all that or a bag of chips. And I know... That Lord sounds like a word or phrase that is antiquated or old, and I've heard some suggest that Christ's followers need to find a new word garbage. Here's why. If Christ's followers declare that Jesus is over all, you and I know exactly what that means. Our hearts are so wicked and deceived. We know what it means to be over all because that's the position we want. It doesn't surprise me we want to come up with a new phrase for Lord, because we don't like the idea of anyone being over us, because we want it. So please don't tell me we need to come up with a new word. We totally understand what Lord means. Over all. This is what Peter was declaring. In Philippians chapter 2, we read it this morning though he was god he did not think of equality with god as something to cling to instead he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave And was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form he humbled himself in obedience to God. And died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor. And gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus. A unique Rescuer with total authority. That's what Peter was declaring, announcing among all the others who say they have ultimate authority. Peter was saying, Jesus alone. And so we've been asking the so what, why these creeds. We've been kind of approaching it from four different positions, clarifying what we mean as Christ followers giving us a well-rounded understanding of our faith, uniting us as a church and how we direct our own hearts and direct the hearts of others. So how does this bring clarity for us? Well, these titles help you and I understand that Jesus is not what popular opinion thinks of him. Popular opinion would say, well, he's a conservative Republican, or he's a liberal, liberal Democrat, or he's a, he's a hippie picking lilies. He's a, he's a vegan who drives a Prius and wears keens. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a teacher. He's a, he's, a, he's a sage. He gives good wisdom. What we are saying is that is not who Jesus is. Jesus is the rescuer sent by God uniquely related to God, God coming in flesh. He's our Lord, meaning He is over all things. This is much different than Jesus being a good teacher. You know, C.S. Lewis gave one of the greatest convincing arguments for me to consider when you start looking at Scripture, that Jesus was either a Lord, liar, or lunatic. You know, even today in our culture, did you know that there are some who would suggest Jesus is a legend and that he did not exist? That's just bad history, but our culture is actually saying that, that he didn't exist. But when you look at the scriptures, you do not see a lunatic, you don't see a liar. You see our Lord. And that's very good news. That's very good news. He's the promised rescuer, unique in his relationship to God and our Lord. Where does this bring balance? Where does this bring, help us to be well-rounded? I've heard it said that there are those who have surrendered to Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. And I'm not sure I totally understand or agree with that statement, but I understand the sentiment. Because if all we see Jesus as is the Savior who pulls us into the life raft, now go about your business. Phew-hoo, glad he got me in the life raft, that's good. Glad I got my ticket, glad I got this, glad he pulled me out of the deep end, now I can go on living my own life not jesus that's a version of jesus that you really like and i get it i understand that we like jesus as savior but the declaration that the christ followers made isn't jesus is savior it's jesus is lord meaning that he's everything meaning that he's not just someone who pulls you into the life raft he's the one who directs the boat he's the one who directs you where you go from here on out And it's not that we declare him as Lord so he will save us. It's because he saved us we declare him as Lord. That is Jesus. To say that Jesus is my Savior but that he is not Lord over my life does not equate following Jesus. Now, Paul actually addressed this way of thinking among the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Let your roots grow down into Him, and let your lives be built on Him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Growing strong, growing thankful, because we see Him as most valuable. Christ's followers aren't following him because he demands that we follow him to be saved, but we understand his saving work, which we'll talk about next week, and we see him as the most prized possession we have. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That means the very thing he longed for in this life, in death, he will get. Can you say that about anything else in this world? I don't know that we can. Christ, be enough. That's Paul's saying unity is the body how does this help us what we're speaking of in Christian terms is the incarnation Jesus putting on flesh coming and camping among his people he did not send someone in his stead but God came and came close to those he longed to be closest to and you know what this means for us as the church we go and do the same means we don't build ivory castles and ivory towers. It means we go and get our hands dirty and sit with people who may or may not agree with us, but that's not why we sit with them. We sit with them because Jesus sat with us. We go and we sit with people, and you know what we do? We listen. We listen to what their their heart cries are, and we say, you know what? Jesus has met that in us, and he wants to meet that in you too, and we want to journey alongside you. We want to listen to you and you know what if you don't hear what we have to say we'll sit and listen with you and we'll work alongside you regardless i'm not asking you to believe as we believe so that i can be among you i'm asking you i'm just wanting to be with you and you know what the other key thing jesus stayed a long time this totally speaks to the grass is greener american culture like we're always thinking there's something better so we don't commit to anything right like that's it we are afraid to commit to something because we think the grass is greener somewhere else, and we're just holding out for that greener grass. The truth is, because Jesus came close, it's not how we live. We live as people invested in communities for a long time. That's how the incarnation impacts us as a church, unites us as a church. And lastly, as we close this morning, how how does this direct us? How does Christ being Christ, the Son of God, the Lord, direct us? Well, if Jesus said that he came to give us life, and he is that life, then we want it. And we don't want anything to stand in our way to get to that. And when those things do stand in our way, we make that confession, Jesus, man, I've been my heart has been led astray. My heart has thought there are things greater than you in this life. And man, I need you to show me that you're better. You are better. And I'm confessing that. How do we direct others? Same way. Jesus is inviting us to be enough. He wants us to see him as enough. Paul said it in Galatians chapter 6, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. I think some of us struggle with the last phrase of that verse you mean the world's not going to be interested in me if Jesus is enough? Sorry. But Paul is saying, I'm, my boast is in Christ, and my interest in this world has died, and the world's interest in me has also died. He's enough. That's what Christ's followers declare. And so in an act of, religi- of, of allegiance and rebellion... These confessions come from us as Christ followers. And so I want to encourage you if you're at a place where you're saying, I believe these things, then I want to invite you to be baptized. It's what we see in the scripture, you know? I don't know what else to invite people to other than if, if, you feel, if you're like, I believe this with everything in me, be baptized. We'll be doing that together as the church on the 16th, as I mentioned. If you've got questions about what that looks like, we'd love to talk with you more about it. But that's the invitation. So if you guys will, as we've closed every time together, if you'll stand with me, we're going to make this confession together as the church. And if you would want to say these things out loud, you can. If you don't believe it, don't say it. Just stand quietly. (laughs) But if you want to say these things together as the church... We'll do that, and we will worship. Because these are, these confessions, it is worship. We sing these songs with these very same lyrics. But we'll say them together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate